Father, I'm so grateful to be a part of a body, to be part of a community, to be involved with other models and mentors and examples who have been so faithful to you, who have set consistent examples and who are secure enough in who they are in their relationship with you to allow others to get the joy of serving you. Lord, we ask that your word would be unleashed and have power and that across the generational spectrum, we would all find an agelessness in the truth of your gospel. So I ask, Lord, that you would raise up in our midst leaders, pillars of truth. And Lord, that you would cause each of us to get less young more gracefully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. See, I, I know how to be politically correct. All right. Good evening, everybody. I know you're already in First Timothy, so you have the head start. Awesome. I want to start, if you will allow me, with two stories. There is an aging king who's been sitting on the throne for some time. And there's also a young, promising, attractive, strong, valiant, songwriting, emotional... <laughs> young man who serves in his army. And he is very threatened by the fact that as time goes on, he realizes that this young soldier is more qualified for the kingdom and leading it than he himself is. And in his insecurity, he decides that he's going to try to persecute this young soldier and do everything he can to make him flee. So he throws spears at him. And then when the soldier flees the, the nation, he sends his, uh, his secret service and his top soldiers out to go find him and hunt him down. And as they search for him, he's always on the run and he's always hiding Then in the second story, we have an aging apostle who has been going about his business of preaching the gospel for 20 years. And he too has a couple of assistants and one of them is young and promising and looks like he's got the heart to serve and he's faithful and God's spirit is upon him. Yet he's not insecure and he doesn't feel threatened by this young assistant. But instead, he sees that he needs space to grow. He needs an opportunity to allow God's spirit to work through him. So this aging apostle steps aside and allows him to have an opportunity. And these stories, of course, are the stories of Saul and David, the first, and Paul and Timothy, the second. It's interesting as you look at these stories that we have in both situations someone who's getting less young and someone who is um, not quite established yet. And as I look at these stories, I'm reminded by the fact that we have a very important truth to embrace here tonight. And that is that in Jesus, no matter how old or how young we are, 
we always have purpose. And say that again, that in Jesus, nobody is too old to have purpose. Nobody is too young to have purpose. The problem is, is that in our experience and as we move forward in life or as we are just beginning life, we often don't see our purpose because we don't see which phase of life we are in. We don't see the whole. And what we have is we have people who are stuck in a beginning phase of life, but are growing and growing and growing age-wise, and we have this epidemic, mostly in our culture of America, it's called aging adolescence. In other words, we have people in their 50s and 60s and 70s who still haven't grown out of their adolescence. And they are the ones who begin to feel threatened by the young. Now remember, I'm speaking from my perspective here. I know I'm not very old, and I know I'm not also too young either, but what I see in America is a generational uh, misunderstanding. And we have these aging adolescents. This isn't everybody, but it is an epidemic in our culture. And so as they're aging, there are more visionary, uh, more energetic, more hip people who are coming up on their heels And they are hungry for things. And as these adolescents are aging, they are beginning to feel more and more increasingly irrelevant. So they hold on harder and tighter and their grip gets, uh, they just hold on harder so that they don't take what I have because they still haven't grown up and they still don't know their purpose in life at that age. So life is very simple the way God designs it. And this is what Saul didn't get, and this is what Paul did get. Is that life is divided into two phases. There's the first phase, they're not very technical names. There's the first phase and the second phase. And all of us are born into the first phase of life, but not all of us get to the second phase of life. So in other words, these phases are not a matter of age, They're not a matter of how many jobs or how much experience you gather. These phases have something else to them. When a person gets to phase two, well, again, it's not age-related. So there's not some magical day in your life where suddenly I have arrived in phase two. It isn't a rite of passage for 40-year-olds or 50-year-olds or 60-year-olds. That's not how phase two works. And that's why I say we have many aging people stuck in phase one who are battling other youths who are also in phase one rather than understanding their place in the different realms of life. So Saul and David are fighting in phase one of life. Paul has moved on to phase two and has allowed Timothy phase one. Now, what are these phases and what do they look like? The first phase of life is the one that Saul was stuck in. And this is the phase where we are learning to form who we are. Phase one of life is where we are being formed. We're figuring out our limits, our abilities, who we are, why we're on this earth. 
Phase two of life is where we are filled. And it's because we know our shape, it's because we know our form, that in phase two, we can now be filled because we know what belongs in what we've been shaped, structured, and formed as. And we can now, with confidence, let other people have places because we know who we are. We know our shape and we're confident in that. And our whole perspective of life has shifted into another mission. If you want to look at the two phases in the picture of a building, this helps me. If we're talking about building, phase one of life is the construction phase. And stage two of life is the hospitality phase. So in phase one, we have blueprints, we have materials, we have workers as they put the materials together and they have to follow certain laws and certain codes and there's a certain rule of architecture. Everything has to go just right so the building can hold up, right? That's phase one. It's all being put together. We all got to watch this with the gym over there down on the property. The whole construction and coming together part. Phase two of life is once this is built, we now realize that we have a new purpose. My purpose is no longer trying to be built up and figure out who I am, but my purpose is now to open the doors of the building that has been built and allow others to use the building for what it was meant to be used. Hospitality. Doors are open, and if it's a gymnasium, then we are now used for sports. It would look awfully strange, wouldn't it, if we had a gymnasium, but we said, no, thank you. The floors are brand new. We don't want anyone's shoes to scuff it up. (laughs) Right? That would be very strange. But this is what we have so many in our culture doing. We're stuck in the first phase. King Saul, a self-made man. And when David comes along, He's not ready to get to phase two and say, David, I have done everything right. I've lived my life well before God. I am now going to bring you on board and train you up in the ways of kingship. Nope, he doesn't do that. He's not a phase two aging man. He's still in phase one, an adolescent adult. And he says, David, you are too good for your own. You're too good for my good. I don't need you out of here. You're a threat to my relevance. And see, if David moves into phase one, where does Saul fit? And that's the fear we see many of the less young, even in the church, facing is we don't want to be irrelevant. Not realizing that there is a whole new ministry waiting for us in phase two. I've talked with some people who um, around my age that are not in such an understanding, um, less young apostle, so to speak as our pastor Mike, um, and they feel, I've been in some of these churches too, uh, they feel threatened by anyone younger than them. And so they constantly shut doors of opportunity for the young. And there's a problem with that in the church. And this is what the young people, I'm, I'm speaking from those I've watched and my friends and such, my generation, all of them hipsters and millennials, <laughs> Right. They see the older people guarding very severely what they've established and realize, okay, where do we fit? 
And either they're going to rub shoulders quite a bit and the ones holding their guard are going to criticize their tattoos or the way they dress or the, the fact that they can never get earphones out of their ears and all these things and too much social media and why do you Netflix binge? And, you know, in my day we walked to school barefoot in the snow. <laughs> Uphill both ways. <laughs> and they're over here going, you don't get it, old man. You just don't, you're not with the times and now the world's moved on and you're behind. And, you know, this shoulder rubbing's happening. And so either there's going to be the conflict or we're seeing, um, we're seeing millennials leave the church in droves. And the, at least the positive part, which is still a negative, we're either seeing millennials live in droves or they're establishing their own churches where the less young feel like they don't even know if they're in Banana Republic or church. They don't know where they are. Is this a Lakers game? Look at all these lights and whistles and excitement and hype level. This is what we have. Churches that are full of 30 and under and churches that are full of 60 and over. We've got that situation. Few are very blended. And then we've got the rest that don't want to go to either or. They're leaving in droves. And sadly, we haven't done a very good job at understanding how to age well. Granted, it's easy for me to do this and say this to the less young. You know, you're not aging well. (laughs) Um but also the young are not living their phase one of life very well either. And so before I move on and leave, let all the uh, less young look at me and think, well, look at you, hot shot, just ragging on us. Um, <laughs> let me say something to, to the younger, the, um, the 70 and under, right? Let me say something to the younger. Um, phase one and construction requires a lot of rules and regulations. You cannot build this gymnasium well unless you follow the the blueprint. Um, You have the inspections up to status and you understand the laws of gravity and and how to build things so they can sustain certain amounts of weight, right? There are certain rules you have to follow to build well. The problem with the young living in phase one is that they don't want the rules, They don't want to be told how to build well. They just want the materials to be there. And as long as we somehow stack them together, it's good enough. And before they get it built well, the young often are inviting people into this shabby shack without building it well. And at some point, things are going to collapse or people are going to get hurt. So... As a society, we are definitely not aging well, moving from phase one to phase two. But worse is that we are not starting well either. See, the less young are not getting to phase two well because, frankly, um, we were very rebellious in phase one. And my generation is following the same footsteps with maybe quicker pace. And so we're going to, I'm going to see, you will see in my generation, I think we're going to have equally, um, an equal difficulty moving from phase one to phase two. So to clear the air, I'm not pointing the finger just at an older generation. 
I am pointing the finger at a culture, both young and less young alike. Those are the two halves, and these are crucial. Timothy in phase one, Paul recognizing it's time that I am now in phase two. I've built many churches. It is now time. My construction phase is done. It is now time I fill these churches with gifts, with pillars, as we will look at in First Timothy. Pillars are leaders. Pillars are the people who are willing to stand up in their purpose. They can be first phasers or second phasers, but they're people who say, if you're in first phase, a pillar says, I understand what's required of me and I'm willing to submit it so that my soul can be strengthened and I know my boundaries and I'm ready at someday to graduate to phase two. Pillars are people who in phase two say, you know what? I am not threatened by people who are doing a better job than me because they're younger and quicker and smarter. I now know my new phase and my new role and I want to hew, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to hew new pillars and that is a crucial ministry right there that's paul paul been a pillar in the church for 20 years says i need new pillars in this church because the church is growing and to hold the structure up we need more pillars every day to get the structure growing and holding itself up that's what Paul gets, and that's what Paul does as he looks at Timothy. Timothy's not alone. He had his entourage of pillars that he was busy chiseling and hewing and forming for their ministry and preparing them for a future second phase so that they can hew more pillars in the future. So we are now in a section of the Bible called the Pastoral Epistles. That would be First and Second Timothy and Titus. Timothy and Titus are two of these pillars Paul is hewing. And where we are is, we just finished Philippians. Before that, we did Philemon. Before that, we did Ephesians. And just before that, we did Colossians. Those four books form what has been traditionally called the prison epistles. More properly, they should be called the probation or the house arrest epistles. Because Paul wasn't actually in chains. He was in high security probation waiting to hear Caesar, as Mike has explained to us uh, in the past. So, those four letters were written at the end of Acts. In Acts 28, we see Paul's in house arrest. It ends. And then those four epistles are written there at the end of Acts. Paul, uh, we don't know if he ever gets his hearing with Caesar or not, but what we do know is he's released. So when First Timothy, Paul is presently released. He's on the move. He's going to church. He's like, I'm back. <laughs> and his enemy's like, no. And the church is applauding. So that's what Paul is doing. So now, what does he do upon his release? Well, he goes, we can figure by connecting Timothy and Titus, these letters together. He goes to the island of Crete with Titus and Timothy. So he takes his young protégés with him. And he perhaps has a whole different view on life at this point. You know, after one house arrest, he's thinking, maybe it's time that I'm in a new phase of life. And so he takes Timothy and Titus, he goes to Crete, they plant churches there, and then he leaves Titus in Crete to make the churches flourish and run. Young Titus, here you go. We'll read about that in the book of Titus. 
then Paul and Timothy move on from Crete and they want to go north towards Macedonia, which is the uh, region, if you want to call it county, fine, the county in which Philippi sits in. So Paul and Timothy are on their way up to that region, uh, mostly up towards Philippi. And on their way up to Philippi, you did what every traveler did, as we do today. When you fly to get anywhere, you often have layovers. They had a layover in Ephesus where they were going to switch ships that would take them up to Philippi. Well, upon their arrival in Ephesus, Paul and Timothy realize, oh my goodness, Timothy, do you look at that? My prophecy came true. And he wasn't excited about that. In Acts 20, verse 29 and 30, you may remember Paul on his way to Jerusalem where he's prophesying, I'm going to be in prison soon. I don't know what's going on. So he meets the Ephesian elders and says, this is my farewell. And remember there, he tells them, beware, there are wolves in your midst. He's talking to the Ephesian church leaders. There are wolves in your midst. These pillars of the church, some of you are not good pillars. And you are going to embrace false teachings. And you're going to feast upon the flock. So back to Paul and Timothy in Ephesus, waiting for their new ship. They realize this is happening. There is false teaching in this church. So Paul, we don't know why it's urgent, but he needs to get to Philippi, or maybe he simply sees an opportunity. I don't know why, but Paul looks at the situation and says, Timothy, you stay here. I will get to Philippi on my own. So on that layover, only Paul gets on the next ship. Timothy stays, and he is addressing one of the biggest assignments of his life. Now, Timothy's not a rookie, okay? This isn't blind. Hey, let's, let's, let's practice what Paul does. Let's go to the high school and grab a kid and let's bring him up here and say, all right, take it over. <laughs> you guys would say, God, help us. and <laughs> Amen. Um, this isn't what happened. Timothy has been very faithful to Paul. His initiation alone wasn't easy. Paul's first mission trip, he goes to Lystra. And there, as he gives the gospel and establishes a church, Timothy's grandmother and mother hear the gospel, get saved. Timothy by osmosis and uh, Here's the gospel from them, and he gets saved. Two years later, Paul returns to Lystra on his second missionary journey, and there he meets Timothy. And he hears of the reputation of Timothy that he's well spoken of by all the church, and he says, Hmm, Timothy, you will be the perfect replacement for Barnabas, who we I cannot get along with. He's an, he's a jerk. Barnabas, it's, it's long story short, he just went on his own thing. He's in sin. Timothy, we don't know that, but it's what I would probably be saying if I was him. So Paul says, Timothy, perfect. You're my replacement. And then he realizes there's a problem. Timothy's not circumcised. So that's his initiation. So Timothy, right off the bat, is a pretty faithful guy. You can know you can count on him. So Paul uh, finds that out firsthand. And he and Timothy now go and they plant churches together. Timothy's involved in six of the letters that Paul writes, either by being present while Paul's writing or helping him out in the writing or being a deliverer of the letter. And then Paul will eventually over the second and third missionary trip, he will send Timothy as his representative, as his ambassador to different churches. First to Thessalonica, 
which was not an easy assignment. That was a church that Paul couldn't go to because his face was on the wanted posters. They were trying to kill him. That church was being persecuted. So he said, Timothy, (laughs) you're the lucky man. Go where they're persecuting Christians and tell me how they're doing. Yes, sir. And so Timothy goes and he comes back. When Paul hears Timothy's good report, Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. And that's how we get that letter. Then Paul sends Timothy over to Corinth. Oh, that's not an easy one either. Uh, We got a bunch of babies arguing, fighting, and complaining in Corinth. And we've also got a guy sleeping with his uh, mother. Is that right? No, that's what my notes say. Um, Who wants to go talk to these people? Timothy is going. So Timothy is sent, and he talks to them. He comes back. Uh, And then third, um, Timothy is proven the third time when he was sent to Philippi. To follow up on the letter you guys heard about last week, the Philippians letter. Um, After that was written and sent, Timothy went a bit later, followed up on it, and came back. So, Timothy's been tried and tested. He's worth his weight. He's left in Ephesus, but this is still the hardest job he's had yet. So, he, who is, you'll find out later, he's relatively young for the culture. He has to stand up to older people to establish leaders in this fellowship who have been there much longer than Timothy, who's there on a layover. Uh, And he has to face them and say, you guys are doing wrong. (laughs) He has to tell them, you're a false teacher. That has to be cut out. You need to get your act together. The church needs to get cleaned up here. Timothy's got his hands full. This is a tough one. So when Paul gets to philippi he writes to the ephesian church to help timothy out and that's where we get the letter first timothy this is what paul writes when he gets to philippi and it's often assumed that this is um a personal letter to timothy but that's not actually the case Though Paul is writing to Timothy and wants Timothy to hear a lot of things personally and directly, Paul's actually writing to the whole church, and this letter would have been read aloud to Timothy and the church by the letter carrier when he got there. And the purpose for this was very clear. Not only does Timothy need encouragement and some guidance in a job that's probably over his head, but second, Paul wants the church to hear that Timothy's in charge. And they need to listen to him. So the letter is public for everybody. So that's what we see. So with that, um, let's look at the text here. So verse 3. That's what we see. As I just explained, Paul says, I urged you, Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, Philippi, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So, here's Timothy's charge. Here's his commission. Like any good charge, it has a negative and a positive. The negative, Timothy, you need to go in there and you need to tell them to stop. You need to tell them to not do these things. Verse 4. So first, not to teach any different doctrine. Verse 4. And not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So, Timothy, you need to go in there and you need to be the red light, the stop man, the no man, the one who says, hey, this teaching, whatever it is, true or not, it is not helping the church get to where it needs to be. And you over here, that is flat out wrong. Leave. Get out of here. So, that's Timothy's charge. 
On a positive note, the charge is verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's where the teaching should be leading the church, to love one another. It should be promoting a sincere faith, a good conscience, and a pure heart. Now, certain persons, verse 6, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion. Can God make a rock so big he cannot lift it? Aren't you all edified by that question? Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Wow. So Paul says, Timothy, these are your guys. Look out for them. They want to teach the law. The law? Yeah, the law of Moses. <laughs> confident. They're making confident assertions about it, but they don't understand it. They don't know what they're talking about, Timothy. Go iron this out. Now, so we see his, his charge negatively. Tell him to stop doing false teaching, to stop the worthless chatter. Positively, redirect the church towards love. And then one more negative, I'm sorry, one more positive. It is in verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them, here's the charge, you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and sound, I'm sorry, holding faith and good conscience. So, Timothy, in the church, be a pillar. Hold your ground. Stand up. Be unmovable. Your job is to, like pillars, bring everything together. Make sure nothing falls apart. Give stability. Give something for people to look to and say, ah, we're in good hands. That's waging the good warfare. That's holding faith in a good conscience. Be a pillar. Now, by rejecting this, end of 19, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So they were not good pillars. They crumbled. And among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Hymenaeus and Alexander are likely some of the leaders of the Ephesian church. They were possibly also some false teachers. What Paul says is when we got there, before Paul took off for Philippi and left Timothy alone, he took care of these two guys. Paul had no doubt that they were bad news. So he basically said, out, leave the church. That's called excommunication. It's a very rare event in America because if I excommunicate you from this fellowship, you'll say, fine, I'm going over here. (laughs) And you're in good shape. You're still in the church. You need to be excommunicated about 20 times before you're out of luck up here, right? (laughs) Maybe more. So, but back back in this time, there's one church. To be excommunicated meant, that's what Paul means by I handed them over to Satan. I let, I kicked them out of the church and into Satan's realm. They're now in the world without the church. And his point is so that they would learn not to blaspheme. So apparently Paul sees whatever they were teaching as blasphemous. Maybe by being kicked out, they'll sober up and realize, wow, the world is pretty bad. I think the true truth was pretty good. And they may come back, they may not. But that's how Paul deals with it. All right. So we see the charge he gives to Timothy 
It's a tall order. Timothy, be a pillar. I'm hewing you. I'm helping you. I'm here to make this work. Now, as an example of how uh, Paul has Timothy's back, Paul's now going to, in the middle of chapter 1, go into a personal biography, or technically it would be an autobiography, right, about his conversion. So, to encourage Timothy, hey, buddy, I'm here to help you. I'm not going to step on your toes. I want to tell you about how I've moved into the second phase of life. And I'm here to help you conquer the first phase so that you can become a phase two player as well. So that's what he's going to do in verse 12. Paul makes the transition. So 1 verse 12. Well, let's, let's start in 8 because this is where, um, then we'll get to 12. This is where he talks about their teachers trying to teach the law. And so Paul's going to say it's stupid. So in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully understanding this that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners for unholy and profane for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality enslavers liars perjurers and whatever else is contrary to the sound or healthy doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So that's why these teachers are dangerous. Okay. These teachers that you hear teaching from the law, they're very legalistic. They're very much into the do, 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 don't, 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 don't. These teachers, you need to see law based legalistic teachers are phase one leaders and they are not necessarily matured and phase two people. And so they're a little bit of a hazard to be leading the church. Now, there is a place, no doubt, for right, wrong, white, black, you know, uh, righteousness and sin. There's a place for drawing those lines. And in phase one of life, we need to get those down and we need to learn them. And that's how we build things and construct our lives is with these rigid rules so that we can become phase two people. But Paul's looking out and he's He's hearing people who are basically making uh, their idea of including, um, of leading people is basically just constantly saying, how did you sin today? Mm -hmm, That's very bad. What do you think you should do? Okay, that's very good. Uh, Just this constant, it's all about white and black. Not saying that they're wrong and saying there's truth and not truth, but their emphasis is on, did you sin or not sin? That's sin, that's sin, that's sin, that's sin, that's sin, that's not sin, that's not sin. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, that's such an immature way of leading a church. There's a new function that mature believers need to move into. And that's where we stop being so concerned. Well, we're always concerned, but we stop making life all about what is sin and what is not sin. And we actually live into the mission that our Paul, God, has sent us onto, has charged us with. God has asked us to, verse 5, our aim, our charge is love, to go and be people of love. People of love with a good conscience, a pure heart, and a sincere faith. Christianity is more than saying, I'm not going to do that because it's sin, or I'm going to do this because it's righteousness. But it's about moving forward and maturing because these things are established as part of who you are. And saying, who now can I open the door to invite into my life and hew as a pillar, a future pillar for the church at large as it grows. Christianity is about so much more than 
did I sin this week or not? So Paul very um, harshly says that these guys don't even know what it means to teach. The law is not for the mature. It's for the sinner and the lawless. It's for the one who's not even getting phase one of life down yet. Teach them the law. But many of the other Christians need to be encouraged to mature. So that leads Paul now into this autobiographical section, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. What a turnaround. He even says an opponent. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor. Those are heavy words of hostility against God. But I received mercy. Verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost or the chief. And again, he says, but I received mercy. You see, he's blown away by this twice. But I received mercy for this reason. And what he's going to say in my words is so that I could be a pillar for God. But this is how he says it. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, and the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul includes this here, the day his life changed. He's talking about his conversion, right? In Acts 9, we learn he's on the road to Damascus, north of Jerusalem, where many of the Christians fled the persecutions in Jerusalem. Paul was one of the highest scholars in Judaism. He was sitting at the foot of the best teacher of their religion. He was one of the shining limited students this teacher Gamaliel would allow. Paul is primed to be a leader of Judaism, a top star, a celebrity, one of the rulers of religion in Israel. And Paul, with such passion for what he's making himself to be, Paul, this man who studied his way to the top, Paul, this self-made man, goes and in his strength and power to Damascus to wipe out this younger newer threat called christianity paul's name before was what and there he goes like the king of old to wipe out the children of the son of david and he is like king saul on a rampage and he cannot handle this new movement and he wants to wipe it away he is a phase one person 
He's built himself up. His house looks great. It's strong. It's solid. And he's saying, I am going to continue to build myself mighty. And I'm going to be the one remembered to stamp out this young movement. But on the way, he meets Jesus. Knocked off his horse, blinded, on the ground, groping about, needing to be carried by the hand. Has to wait till some other person, a Christian, comes to pray for him before he can see again. And from that day on, on the run, a fugitive, someone hated by the Jews, constantly in fear for his life, involved in shipwrecks, always hungry, always cold, never having enough. Remember Second Corinthians, his impressive resume of how weak he is? The self-made man who perfectly constructed himself collapsed. And that, Paul is telling Timothy, is when I made this transition to phase two. That's when I stopped trying to make something of myself. And he says twice, and I received mercy. Phase one. He builds himself up mighty like King Saul. He's proud of his work. He feels threatened. He's insecure, so he has to react violently. But the house crumbles. And it is in the great fall of that house that he realizes what materials he built with. It was ego. It was pride. Phase two began when Paul said, I'm going to rebuild myself, not with self-made materials but with god-made materials god's gonna build me this time from the ground up and then when the construction was completed as paul went into the wilderness for a few years to learn and be rebuilt by jesus and to get his identity he then launches out powerfully into the world and we see a man a pillar who has done incredible things in which we're all here more likely than not because paul's house crumbled and he became a phase two person and said god you build the house this time i will now open the door and welcome the world to know the gospel that's the humility. That's the hospitality that phase two pillars live in. And here's the reason I believe that many of us don't make or at least struggle with getting to phase two is because the only way out of phase one is to watch everything you've built crumble and realize I built all of that with my ego and I have to start over. Was it worthless? No. You learned how not to build a house. <laughs> Very importantly, you learned, I can't build anything well. I will now let God build as he does masterfully. And many of us have stories and testimonies in here that are powerful, that are amazing. We have former alcoholics. And you know what? You in phase one were building horribly. I don't need the rules. I'm going to build my house my way. As you guzzled down the wine and the whatever, the alcohol, you guzzled it all down. But your house collapsed, didn't it? And that's why you're here tonight. It collapsed and you've learned I need to be rebuilt. But here's my encouragement to you. Realize that you need to be in a phase two Christianity now. It is time that because of your failure, God has given you a gift in that failure. Your destruction wasn't 
the end of you. God says, hey, I want to use your former alcoholism. I want to use your former sin, your downfall. And I want to take that rubble and make it a step for you to climb up on. Forgiveness is not merely let's remove the rubble and pretend it never happened. Although that's partly what we can live in. But what forgiveness does, because that would be for taking He doesn't fortake our sins. He forgives our sins. He takes our sins and transforms them into platforms with which we can move forward, higher, and further in with Christ. We don't need to look at our mistakes and say, what a waste. We can look at those and say, what a gift that God is able to turn beauty from ashes. He's able to take what was death and make it life and help propel me to see the ruin thereof and move into phase two. And that's what Paul says. Thank God that though I was the foremost sinner, the chief of them all, I was a pillar in sin. (laughs) That through my downfall, God gave me the greatest gift I can ever have. And that's why, Timothy, I was able to leave you in Ephesus and I'm able to hew you as a future pillar because God made me one and I want to live in phase two and make other pillars around me. That's why I'm no longer Saul, but I'm Paul. I don't live like that king of old. I live like this apostle who's less young than he used to be. So my question, since I'm talking mostly to people that are at a place in life where they can be and should be in phase two. Are you, and you can answer this, well, with deep reflection, yes, but partly by asking yourself, who do you hew? This is not Dr. Seuss. (laughs) (laughs) Who do you Hugh, what pillars around you are you trying to welcome in through hospitality and say, this is what God does and I want to build into you? I mean, if you think about the, the rubble that we've climbed over, many of us, the collective rubble, the collective sin, the collective failure, the collective lessons and experiences in this room alone right now, all of that together, what kind of amazing pillar hewers we have in here? And so let us check ourselves and ask, is there someone that I am using my past failures to help build into. Otherwise, yeah, your past mistakes are quite a waste because the gift that God's giving to you in them, you're doing nothing with. So as a Timothy, I, with a whole generation of people who feel despised by the elders, and I, you know, I have to, of course, apologize for our disrespect to you too. But speaking as the younger to people who ought to be examples, we are begging for Paul's out there to hew some new pillars out of. We want leadership, but we don't want the kind that preaches at us with the law. Although we do need some structure, we want the kind that comes to us like Paul and says, but I learned true ministry when I stopped being a self-made man and I received mercy and that's how we hew new pillars we invite and let them receive and we share out of the transformation not out of the rules and the well i don't i don't think tattoos are very uh i don't think jesus would have had one (laughs) 
is that your fifth cup of coffee? My goodness. If you used all that money for missions, I get it. You know, I wonder too. But listen, that's not how you hew a pillar. That's how you throw people out of the church. So Jesus, as the worship, as Chris <laughs> comes up, we want to thank you for what you did in Paul's life. And there are, well, about a hundred stories like that in here. I ask, Lord, that you give us the courage to let our own cards fall so that we can become phase two people. I pray that you would make pillars, not just a few pillars in our midst, but that you would make the entire body here a, a multitude of pillars who become the support of the mountain, who become the support of San Bernardino. That we would hold fast, that we would exalt you, that all things would be held together because you've established people who know who they are and are willing to open their life to others.